listening to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. One thing is for sure, distributors are making increased demands of suppliers, some of which include higher rebates, often as high as 7%, longer net pay terms, an expectation of indemnification, requests for product exclusivity, and relatively new trend, prebates, asking suppliers for money up front prior to being considered a preferred vendor. That's a quote from an article written by ASI's Executive Director of Editorial Marketing Services, Michelle Bell, published in Counselor Magazine in February. The article was titled, The Big Squeeze, Are Promo Distributors Putting Too Much Demand on Suppliers? And it set off a firestorm of opinions in the industry. I'm Bobby Lehu, the Chief Content Officer at CommonSkew, and joining me today is Mark Graham, CommonSkew's Chief Platform Officer, and Sam Cates, CommonSkew's Vice President of Sales. Now, Sam has had extensive experience both as a large supplier and large distributor, and together we dig beneath the surface and try to discover what is all the rumbling about. Oh, and just a heads up, our audio quality is a bit poor in this episode because we were eager to quickly capture some thoughts around this topic, but I think you'll agree that the conversation was worth sharing and worth continuing. Were you as surprised at the reactions in the industry as I was regarding this article? Um, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I what I thought was interesting was how long it's taken for something like this to come out. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of discussions with supplier friends over the years where we discuss these kinds of things and we should, you know, speak about it at conferences and, and everybody looks at each other going, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to say it. (laughs) And so I think it's, you know, amongst the supplier world, it's been this, you know, constant dialogue. Um, but it, it hasn't come out in the public. And I, I saw this and I thought, oh, it's probably another one of those articles about how suppliers are getting squeezed. And then I realized, oh, there actually hasn't been one before. <laughs> well, what was surprising to me, too, was were, was the, the uh, strong opinions. And, of course, um, this is a tremendous uh, piece of journalism from Michelle. Um, you know, it's, it's beautiful journalism in the sense that you basically take some very strong opinions um, and you can craft those into a narrative. Um, and in this case, um, it's obviously a topic that's been laying under the surface for a long time that everybody talks about behind the scenes but doesn't really get as much public playtime. Well, I think it was bold for her to do this as well, given that ASI has a business model that caters to both suppliers and distributors. So I certainly applaud Michelle for like a pretty hard hitting article that doesn't um, that doesn't shy away from the white elephant. And I think that's unusual in a trade publication. So certainly big kudos to her for that. But I, I think, Bobby, to I I. I agree with Sam and then I, I'm surprised that um, they were 
that they took such a bold position. Um, they obviously ripped the bandage off. And I think that there's a lot of people who are justifiably upset about this uh, on the supplier side. They feel they're being squeezed. They feel they're, they're being uh, taken advantage of by uh, quote unquote predatory distributors, which is interesting to hear that, uh, you know, that, that, that particular description. And I, what I hope comes out of this is that distributors reevaluate their asks. Um, and I also hope that suppliers grow a pair, so to speak, um, in standing up to distributors and saying they're not going to do this. And I think that there's all sorts of reasons why this happens, why distributors demand these things and why suppliers capitulate. And I think we'll get into that. And I think that's a change too, because it's, it's lazy business in my opinion. What you you all probably had this experience where you received a private message um, through Facebook or through LinkedIn or through email or text um, about this article. It was kind of that it was that explosive in the sense that there were a lot of strong opinions on it. And I noticed it was there was a trend amongst uh, the smaller uh, distributors that were like we had no idea this even existed. Yeah. Um, and, and I will tell you from uh, and Sam, you're you have all kinds of experience on both the supplier and the distributor side, so you've probably seen every aspect of that article. But there were aspects of that article that surprised and shocked me. And I've been involved with the buying group, and I, I'd never heard, for example, in our uh, uh, in my involvement with reciprocity and the, the the work that we did there, I'd never once heard the word prebate until I read that article. And I'm 25 years in the business, have been involved in the buying group. Now, maybe some other folks were familiar with it, but I'd never heard that term before. One of the things that concerns me about the articles that will all often gravitate to most extreme parts of the um, of the of the argument and camp out in those areas when those are pretty fringe, like that prebate, I think. Yeah, I hadn't um, really heard of that either. I mean, I I guess it's a little bit like if you're trying to lure a top salesperson, you know, sort of like you, you would give them a, a signing bonus. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit in that vein, but I, I think that's uh, that was new to me, and it's, it's pretty bold. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I heard about this uh, a few weeks ago. I was at the Toronto or the Canadian show, you know, l- less than a month ago, and I was speaking with a prominent Canadian distributor that goes up against one of the largest distributors in the industry. Uh, they happen to be, be to be publicly traded. And, and he said, uh, this particular person I was speaking to, he said that he had lost this transaction against this large distributor because they had given a prebate. And that was the first time I heard about it. And he said it was something like a $100,000 check before dollar one had come in. And oh. the reason I said that they were publicly traded is he said, I can't compete with that because they've got such a strong balance sheet and they've obviously got lots of cash to throw around where, you know, this particular distributor may be a $15 million distributor and couldn't compete with it. And to me, I looked at it and said, well, either that's just a savvy negotiating uh, tactic uh, um, by a much larger distributor that's got some public money to play with, or they're, they're being financially irresponsible. I don't know. But regardless, the smaller $15 million distributor lost out because they didn't have the money to prebate. Wow. So how critical are rebates to larger distributors, do you think? Um, having, you know, my experience on a large distributor scale, I would say very critical. Um, and where I found it to be um, 
troubling years ago. I had I remember being at a power summit and having a discussion with a number of suppliers about it. Is when you start to wonder what business are the large distributors in? You know, if if the core business model isn't successful on its own merits and it relies on the backs of suppliers to support it, then really it's just a pass-through entity. It, it's not an ongoing business concern. Right. And that that's where I, I find it to be concerning. I think rebates have been around for a very long time in lots of marketplaces. I mean, grocery stores are probably the pioneer in, in rebates, and, and it's a healthy industry, and rebates have a place. But not when the entire purpose of the business is reliant on the rebate to survive. Right. Mm. You know, from a, from a small distributor's perspective, I say small, small-ish. So um, one thing that, that is clear, very important about this, not necessarily discussed in this article, and again, we keep pointing to the fringe elements of this article where the extreme, the extremes, the, the very edges of, of this some of this outrageous, you know, 90 days and prebates. But for a distributor, um, the rebate component comes in as a very strong way to attract those that are in the selling role to push a particular line, right? And the more, and obviously rebate at its most simple is you spend more business with a supplier, you end up getting better pricing and better discounts. For From a distributor, there there are two perspectives. One is the, the rebate, of course, is... Um, uh, another healthy way to uh, negotiate pricing um, and healthy way to add back to your to your bottom line. But the unspoken in this article, too, is that we did an analysis in six months, and we used somewhere around 268 suppliers in a six-month period. Now, that's a distributorship that had been in business for a long time, so we had a lot of relationships. But I know a $20 million distributor that spends 85% of their business with about 30 suppliers. So the from there are two things um, that play here. One is the rebate itself going back to the bottom line for distributor, but also just the operating expenses of having to manage so many supplier relationships and then trying to channel those into key suppliers. I mean, at its at the at its best, the rebate component works extremely well for both parties if you're growing sales with the supplier and if uh, you are able to aggregate spend. Yeah, well, if you think about what you're saying there, so if if I'm a large distributor and I want to have the, I want to consolidate my suppliers and I want my members to have the best experience possible to be able to have, you know, preferential pricing and great marketing programs and and create a network of of suppliers that are going to, you know, provide value, then the rebate shouldn't matter at all. You know, the, the rebate shouldn't even be in there because I'd want to put those dollars instead on marketing, you know, visits, shows, um, different pieces of collateral, better pricing. So the rebate is what the house gets. And all the other stuff is what everybody who's a member of that is supposed to be able to rely on. But EQP is really not EQP anymore because that has lost its luster once everybody has EQP. And there's really only so many free spec samples and free setups that you can do. And so they... I think it's put the distributors in a place where they have to keep thinking of things um, to add on to it. But the, the rebate is supposed to be one of many advantages, like you had mentioned, just creating that consolidation, which has a lot of benefits. But but the rebate shouldn't be what everything is, you know, becoming hinged upon. And, and that's where 
Correct. That's, that's what I think has been happening, is that the rebate has become too important. Right. I, I'm I'm curious to know whether salesperson compensation is also a factor here. And Michelle, I noticed, didn't mention that in the article. But if you're a d- big distributor principal, might you be saying to yourself, well, hang on a second here. I have to – I've got this uh, – um, generous commission split that I have with my top salespeople that are bringing in these large, large dollars, and I have to be paying them this. So as a result, there's not nearly as much money that's flowing down to the bottom line. So I, as the distributor principal, need to go to the supplier to to justify keeping the distributor lights on. And, and, And if that's the case, do we need to rethink salesperson compensation? I think that's a big part of it. I think that's a huge part because when you look at the um, growing operating expenses, um, you know, we're, our model is still based on a very traditional commission split um, that goes back decades, years, yeah. and yeah. that hasn't been adjusted yet. When you look at the operating expenses for a distributor, you've seen technology grow. You've seen uh, marketing expenses grow because you're in a mature industry. You spend more on marketing. Uh, you do feel the pressure on the bottom line. And, Mark, I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly what's going on. Where the where the problem, I think what I hear Sam saying, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, where the problem becomes is maybe when the house tends to absorb 100% of that rebate and it doesn't necessarily drive sales with the sales force per se. Yeah, and I think the balance has to be there. And some distributors do, you know, portion out a, a small amount of that rebate back to their their sales reps and and I applaud them for doing that because mm-hmm. you know they should be at the very least sharing um, because they're sharing everything else you know they're sharing right. the better pricing they're sharing you know the better attention and so why shouldn't they share the rebates I mean the salesperson is where that transaction is occurring um, but I think that if you you get into a situation where you're saying from a distributor standpoint, their costs are too high, so therefore they need to lean on their suppliers to help them. It goes back to the point I made before, which is, well, then is the, is the business model not working? And is it the right. supplier's problem? Right. Is, is it just simple good negotiation, though? I mean, could you just have um, distributors who, who know their leverage and want to utilize it to their best ability? I mean, it's interesting that uh, on one hand you have – um, suppliers who, who will hate this concept and, and will malign it privately, but publicly they're, 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 they'll want to be a part of it. So I actually have heard that, you know, that sentiment shared by supplier friends on one hand where you, you kind of hate the squeeze, but at the same time you want to be a part of getting some of that business with some of these distributors. So you're prepared to play the game. Right. Well, Sam, you know you've what got it lots is more than that, that, though? Oh, sorry, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that, and I've talked to some supplier friends recently. I mean, it's it's not that you want to be in the game. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but I think it's more the fear of if I give up my spot, who will take it? Right. And I think that's really where the paying the higher rebates seem to just keep escalating and, and why people keep playing the game because they think if I don't, someone will take the, you know, the, the T-shirt spot or someone will take the, you know, um, water bottle spot or, you know, whatever spot I fit in, somebody else mm-hmm. will take it. Right. Um, and it, it, but nobody's really stepping back and looking at, like, you know, anybody can make sales. Sales is not the problem. It's, it's making profit that we're all supposed to be doing. And if you keep giving away these, 
these rebates and all the different ancillary things that are being asked and the sale isn't even a good sale anymore. Right. Right. It's it's not profitable enough. I I think that's a really good point in that if you're, and I'm just trying to imagine myself, if if I'm a, uh, a large supplier in the industry, and I, let's say I'm doing $100 million in sales, so that would qual- that would qualify me as a large supplier. I'm doing $100 million of sales, and I brought all this product in from China. My, I've got big warehouses, and I've grown with the big top 40 distributors who now have me in their programs, and I've signed these contracts, and I'm paying to play, and I'm getting squeezed a little bit more each and every year. That if I go to Staples or, well, I won't highlight just them, but if I go to Staples or Jack Nadell or some of the other uh, larger distributors that were mentioned in the Michelle Bell article, and I say, you know what, I'm not going to play ball, and I now, lo- I now go from, or I, I fear this idea of going from a $100 million supplier to a $70 million supplier, and I think that I can sympathize with that. But I think that a big part of the issue is if if one of these top 40 distributors is not sustainable to work with, then I think the supplier really needs to see where they can replace that business. And maybe they don't need to go and replace it with $30 more worth of sales. They might need to go replace it with $15 million worth of sales at good margin. Uh, I'll relate a story that I had back in the right sleeve days, like years and years and years ago. Um, This is probably like maybe three or four years into the distributorship. And I have gone out and landed a really, really big um, contract with a large uh, nonprofit that was purchasing like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of T-shirts. And at the time, they represented probably 60, maybe two-thirds of my sales. And it was very skinny margins. They were very challenging to work with uh, because I was working with their purchasing department. And uh, but I but I got um, I was enamored by the volume and I was enamored by the quality of this particular end client. I was enamored by the fact that now I had suppliers that were lining up to do business with me. And I thought, hey, this is great for my ego. And then I lost the business almost overnight because my price was not as competitive the next time the purchasing department came to me for the next deal. And I lost the business. And for a distributorship to lose two-thirds of your sales was brutal. But for me at the time, and I think that this, Bobby, I know you and I have talked a lot about this in terms of some of my harsh views about this, that from that moment forward, I said, I am not going to build a distributorship or build any business that relies on unprofitable sales where the loyalty is based on just cost. And so what was interesting is it took us some time to go and rebuild that business. But instead of replacing it with yet another large volume, skinny margin, uh, highfalutin end client, we went out and looked at business where we could sell at full margin and we could offer a solution that that these end clients would, would pay for. And what was interesting is it, it took a little while to do so, but in, in doing so, created a distributorship that was incredibly more profitable and was also um, less immune to these um, uh, to, to the whims of these purchasing departments. So I personally bring a lot of baggage to this. When I read the article, it pissed me off because I looked at this and said, this is lazy business. And, and, and I remember what it was like for me. And I just think to myself, like, this is a lazy and bad way to build a business. And I hope that suppliers can stand up to these distributors. And I hope that distributors can stand up to these end clients that are putting these terms on them. And if you can't stand up to them, 
then you're not selling creatively enough. That's my opinion, and I'll go on the record <laughs> with that. I think you just did. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I hope that's reprinted. <laughs> One of my concerns around this topic is the broad brushstrokes around the rebate component. It's getting maligned. I think one of the dangers we have here is that the that some of these practices are seen as quite typical, whereas you know, I don't th- – and I can, only, I can only speak from my experience. So when I read the article, I read this with my reciprocity experience in the background. Uh, up until reciprocity had happened, and reciprocity for those that are listening and may not even know who we're talking about is a buying group in the industry. And I was a part of it as, as a part of Robin Promotions as a distributor. And it was my first experience, my first foray into buying groups in general. I learned a lot in the course of a couple of years, and it took us a couple of years to actually get it launched. It actually took us two years to get it launched. And the reason is we spent the first year just trying to figure out if this is something we wanted to do. We spent the second year trying to in, in, in really figure out what the what the details of the uh, group would be about, and also uh, we were strategizing with suppliers along the way. So we didn't build this without supplier feedback. Um, and I don't think I'm compromising any uh, secrets from the group. There's or any information that they wouldn't share publicly, and they share all the time. So we built this in tandem with key suppliers that advised us along the way. And right. what we discovered, what I discovered along the way, um, was that suppliers were hungry to develop this kind of partnership for the obvious purpose of growing their sales with those distributors. Now, one thing I did learn, and I think this is where this article is probably helping, it's helping right-size the problem. One of the problems is rebates have now become standard ask with a lot of large distributors and also buying groups. So buying groups in and of themselves are not a, a bad thing. You have to take each buying group on its own merit. So, for example, let's say you have a buying group that's $250 million in spend, but, they're, but it's comprised of 150 different distributors. That's problematic because now you've got an operating burden for each of those suppliers to manage that many different client relationships, depending on the software they use, the processing, and everything that goes into it. Um, whereas our, my experience with reciprocity is you had you know, six to eight to ten um, that had a, a fairly large 200 to $3 million, $300 million spend, which is a lot more appealing from a from operating management standpoint. Um, but also with a finite group, you can I think you can manage the activity a little more. So from from my perspective, I kind of read it, Mark, and I read it in a positive sense. Like, I mean, there were some really bad business practices in there. I, I grant it, grant that to you for sure. But I also read it with my reciprocity experience and going, you know, but the, I've seen where this can work very and, well for suppliers and distributors. And and where are some of those specific examples, Bobby? Like I I know that one of the w- one thing that I I think is a, a potentially an example of this is where the rebate doesn't flow to just the right. distributor principal that it flows to the salesperson. Like is that an example of what you're talking about? Because I think that where, where I've always seen this is that um, that that at least the, what this article is expressing is that that there's great resentment to any rebate. And and I think that that's probably not quite the truth. Right. But where does a large supplier want to pay rebate? Like, is it on growth? Uh, like where, you know, can you unpack some specific examples there? Yeah, I think people that want to put together a good program. Yeah, and Sam can answer this well because she's got experience on both sides, and she's seen many of these agreements too, um, and and undoubtedly have seen more, many more than I have. 
Um, but you know, yes, based on growth, one of the one of the non-negotiables for at least for reciprocity was that a percentage of that rebate would flow back um, to the sales force that's driving it, and that was driven not only by the suppliers themselves who advised, but also those of us in reciprocity that were passionate about trying to do something different. That's what was a little it's exciting to me about being a part of the group is that there was some genuine honesty around how do we do this in a way that may, helps both sides win, um, and it's still there, uh, you know that I that I know of, it's still their passion today. Um, but yeah, the, the, having the rebate flow back to the folks that are actually driving frontline business is was one of the key components. In fact, that was the number one non-negotiable with suppliers that we started talking to in the early days. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're going to have an agreement that is going to work, then it, it needs to make the the supplier needs to feel excited about the group that they're in. And the suppliers out there definitely have their favorite groups. And then they have their groups that they're like, eh, you know, I got to market yeah. to them and you got to play the right. game. But, you know, when you have, when you have a, there's a difference between, you know, Mark, you're talking about at, your experience at Right Sleeve. I mean, you're talking about a lot of these organizations exist for the sole purpose of serving distributor salespeople right. or distributors, right? They're, they're in a service function. Right. And even the, you know, the larger PPDs, um, like, you know, take a, a staple, you know, they, they have a department whose job is to service, you know, both the supplier contracts and the uh, and mm-hmm. their salespeople and sort of this whole thing. And so, it, you know, at your time at Right Sleeve, it's sort of a ongoing distributorship concern. You're you're part of the fabric of that business, as opposed to being a, a, a franchise or an affiliate type model where they're just a service organization. And so, if the if the contract is going to feel um, mutually beneficial, um, then it should. The sale, the supplier wants to know that the individual sales reps are going to get compensated, that the money is going to go, some of it's going to go to them, right. and they don't just want access. Um, they want, they want the kind of access that's actually going to be fruitful. Right. Um, and so a lot of these distributor companies, they just say, here's our list. You can market to them however you want. Well, you know, that's not very helpful. I mean, suppliers mm-hmm. are busy and they have, you know, dozens and dozens of these kinds of accounts, and they don't. Yeah know what works, what doesn't work, and, you know, what's going to work for their audience or a different audience. And so nothing really ends up happening. Um, it just sort of keeps going. And you've got these groups that have five, 600 members, of which 25 are a good size, and then you've got 550 that aren't really producing right. very much. And, and, right. and I think what distributors don't realize is, you know, supplier salespeople are strapped. I mean, there's thousands of accounts in each territory, and there's only so much time in the day. I did an analysis when I was at Charles River. I think the average rep has like 706 appointment spots. That's it wow. in a year. I mean, yeah. you know, there there just isn't the ability to see that many. So if you get one key account that has 500 members, that's just one. We're, right. How do you, you know, how do you parcel that out? And so um, suppliers want access to their high growth, you know, people, their most creative people, the ones who are engaged, you know, people yeah. they have in common. They, it's not just about the rebate for them. They want that synergy, that energy. They want, you right. know, meaningful relationship development. That's what's important to a supplier. Right. Right. Uh, I, I see there's another uh, conversation point that we have here about uh, th- th- this idea of mandating uh, the purchase of product from suppliers. And, and in this particular case, there's a, a quote here from Craig Nadell. Um, and I'll quote, 
Nadal says rebates are about 3%, but with hard goods suppliers, it could be 5% and acknowledges that the rebates are asked mainly of J&I's preferred vendors with the quid pro quo that the company will try to drive more business to the suppliers by sending out email promos on their behalf to the reps. While we don't promise suppliers that will spend a specific amount with them, we do promise to make the effort. Nadell also points out that J&I's reps aren't locked into only using preferred suppliers. We tout our preferred suppliers, of course, but we don't mandate it. So I'm not trying to single out Craig Nadell here because I think that he represents uh, maybe a phenomenon of, of larger distributors. But when I read that, and if I was on the supplier side of that, and Sam, this is maybe where you can, you know, uh, enlighten me because I haven't been a supplier, but if, if I was to support a, uh, start a suppliership tomorrow and I was pitching a large distributor that told me that I needed to give this 5% rebate, but there was no, no, no requirement or no mandate to purchase mugs from my particular line, I would say, are you crazy? <laughs> Am yeah. I misreading yeah. this? Yeah, no, I know you were like, what? How is that even possible? But, you know, we, I think about what you said before that you had to go back and kind of retool your business to be about that, you know, a different creative model and, you know, provide that value to your end user right. so that, you know, they're getting a different experience with rights leave than they would have with the old rights leave, you know, version 1.0 when you were more of a commodities, let's say, at that time. Yep. Yep. And so how do you balance that? I mean, the suppliers in our industry who can afford these 5, 6, 7% rebates are the suppliers that, well, can afford 5, 6, 7% rebates. Are they the most creative in our industry? Probably not. And they would say that too. Right. Um, and, and the smaller guy out there who really can't afford, you know, that and more than that, they're not invited to play. Right. Um, you know, they're just not. And so some of the best ideas, some of the stuff I've seen at Commons do, the, the suppliers that interact on our platform, they're just, you know, smaller and more nimble and super creative. I mean, those were, that was were products and ideas that I had never seen before right. in the industry. And if, if, if you take a large distributor network and you limit them to these 50 or 80 or 100, you know, you also therefore limit the creativity of this distributor salesperson. And so I think right. there is a balance. Um, but I would never put together an agreement, you know, going forward or even in the past that I fought for that doesn't have the majority of the upside on incremental growth. I mean, right. there is no reason why suppliers can't go back to these distributors and say, I got your agreement. This is what we propose. And, yeah. and sweeten it in a way so that the incremental growth is maybe even better than what they were originally asking, right? Yeah. We'll give you 3% right. on base. And for every, you know, 20% of growth off this number, we'll kick, you know, an, another 1% in. And so now it could be better than they ever thought. It, the supplier's willing to do it because they know it's gonna, they're going to grow from it. And everybody's happy in that scenario. Right. And that's how you can maybe drive more business and do it in a more creative way. Right. Yeah. And Sam, I don't know if this is uh, the maturation of the industry and this whole rebate component as it's become more prevalent. I wonder if that isn't happening in the sense that that's what I, my experience with reciprocity was, was that you sent out an ask. You said, here's what we would prefer. And it was a negotiation. And there, I saw there were very healthy conversations around that. They were like exactly what you said. I know what you want. Here's what we are willing to do. And here's what we think would be beneficial to both of us. Because the bottom line is for at least my experience yeah. with reciprocity was your, your intent was not 
to burn out a supplier relationship in 12 months. The idea was for us to be in business forever. That was the, that was the, that was the goal, right? So this is mutually beneficial. Because one thing is for sure, um, particularly I think the larger distributors, uh, you know, you get into these larger programs, you get into complexity. It requires more consultation between supplier and distributors. So it makes perfect sense to align on a very deep level. But I, I don't know if I just happen to walk into it very late in, in terms of the whole rebate component and buying groups. And what I saw was a very healthy response back and forth, for, for the most part, from suppliers and distributors. Now, that's only from a distributor's perspective, so I don't have that supplier perspective. Yeah, you're making it. I mean, everything you're saying is spot on. And I think every contract in life, it should be a good lesson for everybody. Everything is negotiable. I mean, you know, especially if you can come at it from a different angle and say, what are we all trying to achieve here? You know, mm-hmm. you're not just trying to take 7% from us. You're trying to grow your business, partner with us, have us grow so that we're here next year. And then we're a year after that. You're trying to, yeah. to get us to be a good, good provider to your users and to your members. And so in order to do that, we all need to be happy with this agreement. And if you just shove it down their throat and say, you either do this or you're not part of our team, you know what? Maybe that's not a good partnership for the supplier either. Right. Right. And, you know, terms is a good example here, too. Um, you know, in, in, in our market where I was at, you know, there was a largely oil and gas-based market. Same with Houston. Houston's a huge market. And average or typically minimum um, terms were 60 days with the oil and gas company. So, you know, you're, you're working with negotiations on the client side, and then you're trying to negotiate something similar on the supplier side. So it's not necessarily egregious or outrageous. It's just simply trying to negotiate the deal that makes sense for both. But do you think yeah. in a case like that, I, I know that uh, like the um, the beer companies here in the in the Toronto or the Canadian market, um, most of them are headquartered in Toronto. Um, like Labatt, I think famously came out with 120 day terms. Wow! And I, I try to reflect on that. I remember Right Sleeve had done a little bit of business with Labatt a little while ago, and I I remember two scenarios. Um, number one was we're not going to accept your 120 120 day terms because what we're selling you we know is unique and you and you need it so as a result we're going to negotiate something separate um so so the, that, that was one point um and the other point is that if it is something where we were going to play ball with 120 day terms we went to the supplier and said hey we're working with labat they're a you know a a, a huge uh, brewery, uh, great credit, hopefully. <laughs> um, here's the deal. It's 120, 120-day terms. We can't finance this ourselves, but I just want you to know who it is that we're doing business with. Can we can, can we do 120-day terms with you, uh, the supplier? And what was interesting about that is right from the very beginning of the discussion, because that was listed as upfront, then the supplier treat, uh, feels like they're being treated with respect. They feel like they're being uh, uh, brought along on the journey. And the two of us are serving this particular account together. Now, the right. supplier, I remember in one particular case, we said, well, you know what? 120-day 120 t- 120 terms, that's going to cost us a little bit more because we're going to have to take out some financing for it. So as a result, the product will be another 2% more expensive. But we just built that into the cost of the product, and then Labatt was happy. We didn't have to go and uh, do, do some special negotiation there. And right. I'm not saying that we have all of their business by any stretch. I mean, you're far from it. And but I just think it's a, it's an example of how to deal with some of these larger companies that have some pretty crazy terms 
yeah. and to be able to bring the supplier on in such a way where the supplier feels like they're respected and everyone's making money. Right. Well, you just said the key the key thing there by saying, you know, having to it's going to cost us more to do this business, so we have to add this on. That's yeah. the real um, problem in this whole scenario is that. You know, when you're paying, you know, high rebates and you're giving EQP and you're giving out free samples and you're attending events and all of the other plus, plus, plus things that suppliers are asked for, when that big order comes in for one of these, you know, affiliates or members or, or whatnot, and they call that supplier and they are desperate for a better price, there is right. no better price. Right. Yeah, and so right. in that, you know, that discussion that you could have with Labatt and whatever where they were being up front and saying, hey, it is going to cost more, that's amazing because, you know, now you're being, you know, you know, honest and you're partnering, except yeah. that with, with, what, with what we built here, you can't do that because there's right. no more margin left to give right. away to actually help make the deal happen. Right. right. We've got a few minutes left here. Um, what, what would your final words of advice be to suppliers and distributors? Sam, let's start with you. I think this conversation should not end. I think and I hope that this article will perhaps spur some very you know, open forum discussions, um, either in general terms or specifically as suppliers going to their distributors and saying, you know, we can no longer do these five things on this agreement. Um, so I, I, I hope that there is more of an open discussion around that. I hope that the distributors will work harder to provide tangible value um, for what they're asking, you know, perhaps even take a better look at their overall business profitability and, and find a way through of not having to rely so much on the suppliers to help them meet those objectives. And I think the suppliers in general, like Mark said it, I mean, it's okay to grow a pair and say, you know what, We're, we've made the investment, we've, we've done all the things you said we should do, we've made the inroads with your people, we're not seeing growth, and so we either are going to stay on only and only compensate you on growth, or we're going to have to exit and, mm, and then right. be creative themselves in replacing that business. And I think once they do, once they cut that cord and they find that business elsewhere, they're going to feel free. Yep. Um, because right now, suppliers don't feel free. Yep. Right. Mark, how about you? Yeah, Sam, really, really well said. And I, I think that the only thing that I would add to that, uh, if I was to address it from the supplier perspective and the distributor perspective, is that um, there, there, there was some discussion about how ETS had pulled out of buying groups and had stopped right. paying rebates. Um, I will say that in that I heard that. Uh, if ETS is listening to this and that's not the case, then by all means, please <laughs> please let us know. But that, that was certainly a rumor that I had heard. Mm -hmm. And, and if, that, if that, in fact, is the case, what I think is fascinating about that is you take ETS as a very creative, unique beverageware supplier in this industry that is not Me Too. They design their own mugs. They have their own patents. Sure, they go and source in China, but it's not like they're going off to the Canton Fair and buying the same mug that 17 other hard goods suppliers are. That's, that's not how they do business. So they've invested a lot of money up front to be different. And as a result, they don't need to play the rebate game in the same capacity as the person who has got the exact same product as Leeds, Prime, Hit, and Sweda. Okay, just to, I'm just making those up. Um, and so I, I love the fact that they 
that they have said the pricing is the pricing. And my guess, and again, if ETS wants to come onto the podcast to uh, to clear things up, is that I imagine most buying groups would put a little asterisk there and say, well, ETS is special. Uh, we'll still buy from them because their products are so phenomenal and they've invested so much in making them unique and the end client wants them that we're prepared to put an asterisk beside their name in the rebate program and not accept the rebate. So that's point number one. And, and, and if, if in fact that is the case, then I would hope that all suppliers could be like ETS. Invest in that creative point of differentiation and grow a pair. Number two, on the distributor side, um, what I think is interesting, if you think about it from, a, from an end client perspective, I think a lot of end clients that are doing these large multi-million dollar programs look at the distributor as a company that can go out and produce a Leeds mug, a Suita bag, a hit pen. And I think value the distributor as just a person who can put it all together. But at the end of the day, the end client just sees the distributor as a souped up middleman. And, and I think as a result of that, and I think a lot of distributors go and position themselves that way. And as a result, I think it's harder for the distributor to have a leg to stand on from a negotiation standpoint. Um, they get into cost plus, they get into all these fierce financial discussions uh, around pricing when I think that there's an opportunity for the distributor to pivot and to focus on true creative merchandise solutions that accomplish and solve real marketing challenges for the for the end client. It's easier said than done, but I think that you run into these problems when every distributor lines up and they're quoting the same old same old products for a purchasing department that is only looking at price. I know I'm simplifying it, but I've seen it that you can absolutely turn the conversation into a discussion where you're in charge or you have more leverage when the products and the ideas are more unique. So yeah. that's my challenge to distributors. Good advice. Yeah, I, 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 would, yeah. I, I don't have a whole lot to add to the brilliant advice from you too. I will add, um, I, I was my experience with reciprocity was very positive. It was um, healthy, the exchange and the, the negotiation was very healthy between suppliers and the distributors involved. And the, the bottom line was distributors knew they were reliant upon suppliers for a healthy ecosystem for their, for their business environment. And I think anytime you grasp that, how absolutely vital the relationship is, then I think then you can negotiate from a position of strength on both sides. And my uh, my advice would be to distributors in particular is to, to actually embrace some of these concepts. The, the fact that you would negotiate with your supplier partner means, first of all, you're treating them like a partner, not just like you should be treating them as if, if they're a bank, but like a partner and ask them what is it that's going to be advantageous to both of us and to keep that um, conversation going. And that goes, I think, the lesson for maybe a smaller distributor who's saying, this is all brand new to me. I've never been a part of these groups. I've always been curious. Is It really just goes back to healthy relationships between you and your top supplier partners and treating them like partners. I think that's great yeah, advice, Bobby. Exactly right. So, Mark and Sam, thank you for your time today on the podcast. Sam, particularly your first time on the podcast, we appreciate you joining us. I'm sure we will see you again, but we really appreciated having your supplier and distributor experience on the podcast today. Thank you. You guys are always fun to listen to, so it's fun to be part of it. All right. Thanks, guys. Till next time. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. 
Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.